anything I'm teaching tonight to be an error, please let me know. Uh, because we're, we're learning uh, together things that have eternal consequences, and we want to make sure that we're learning and teaching the truth together. Where we left off last Wednesday evening, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we finished off that chapter. We left a people, the children of Israel, who have decided that they want to be like everybody else around them. They want to be like all the other nations. They want themselves to have a king. And so they rejected God. And they left Samuel in a difficult position. He is now in a people who have rejected this God that has protected them and provided for them all this time. And he is having to deliver them a warning. And then go ahead and give them what they're asking for. Right? He, he gives them that warning. They say, we don't care. We want the king anyway. And so Samuel says, all right, this is what we have to do. And so uh, he dismisses the people at that time. And so... Beginning in chapter 9, we have introduced our king, right, Saul. And so we're going to begin right off with the first two questions. Question number one, Saul is from what tribe? Tribe of Benjamin. How is that significant? Yeah, go back to Judges, right? We just left where they almost wiped that entire tribe off the face of the planet, right? They just were going to kill them all. And so that tribe has been reduced down to nothing, right? And so that's, that's fairly significant. What else is significant about the tribe of Benjamin being the one that Saul is from? It's the smallest tribe. Uh, right. Saul says later that his family is the least of that tribe in and of itself, right? But I'm thinking also, what line is the king supposed to come from? Judah, right? So in Genesis chapter 49, uh, we studied this a few quarters ago, right? Genesis chapter 49, Israel uh, has this long, uh, you know, statement that he's giving to his sons, right? He's making all these proclamations about his different sons before he dies. And in Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10, it talks about the lineage of who that would be king. Judah, right? We talked about that. Judah. And so the tribe of Benjamin is significant in that uh, it's not the tribe of Judah, right? So that's interesting to me. I don't really have too much of a point beyond that, right? But if you think about what happens with Saul and the end of that, it kind of makes sense that Benjamin would be chosen and not Judah, right? Because what's going to happen to Saul's line? It's done. Right? It ceased. Um, and so, you know, with the line of kings is supposed to come from Judah, you wouldn't want to, you know, cut off that line uh, right in the get go. So, again, I think you're just seeing here that this is not a king that is intended as part of the plan. This is a king that the people are choosing for themselves at this time, right? And so we'll, we'll speak more on that here in a little bit. But, question number two describe Saul. How is Saul described to us here in the, the beginning of this chapter? Comes from good stock. Comes from good stock, right? He's the son of a man of valor, right? A man of valor. What does valor mean? Well, you know, it could mean a lot of things. Wealth, prosperity, but, you know, regardless, it's good, good stock, right? He comes from good stock. He's handsome. He's good looking, right? And so he's tall. He's Head and shoulders above everyone else. He's not 
from the Bunting clan, right? He's tall. Um, and so what that brings to my mind is that, yeah, that fits what you're looking for. If you're fitting, you're looking for a king that's going to be just like all the other nations, right? You want somebody tall, somebody good looking, somebody that's going to stand out. Um, somebody from a good family, right? Good family, good stock, good background. Um, that's, that's what you would be looking for, right? As far as uh, finding a king like the kings of the other nations. Um, and so, you know, moving on from there in verses 3 through 10, you, you have to. If you're going to have a new king, you can't start off with a new king without the king first going on a quest, right? He's got to go on a quest. And so what's the quest this new king has? You got to go find the donkeys, right? The family donkeys have wandered off and you got to go find them. <clears throat> I think there's some interesting things about this, uh, you know, I call it a quest just for humor's sake, right? But this task that Saul is given, I think it points out some things that we see about Saul, um, some things we haven't mentioned yet. First off, does Saul go on this journey willingly to go find these donkeys? Yeah, he goes willingly, right? Dad sent me on a quest to find the donkeys. I am going to find the donkeys, right, with the servant. Um, he does some work, right? He goes on a journey. He travels back and forth. Um, it says he passes through the land of Shalisha, the country of Ephraim. They don't find them there. He passes through the land of the Benjamites. He doesn't find them there. He goes all the way to the land of Zuf. And then he's done. Right? Okay, now, now I'm done. But he's traveled a good bit of distance. You know, again, he's not on an ATV or in a truck or, you know, driving around to find these animals. He's walking, right? Walking with the servant to find these donkeys. Um, but in verse 5, when Saul is done, what does he say? Right. Saul's done looking for these donkeys, but, you know, there's a reason, right? Well, we, you know, he's not just done. Okay, I'm finished. I, I tried. I couldn't find him. It's, well, I tried and I couldn't find him. But you know what? Dad's really probably going to worry about me. Um, so I probably need to get home. And I think that comes up later. I don't think necessarily you could say from the passage that there's like any malicious intent there or bad feelings there or he's, you know, anything like that. But he comes up with an excuse to justify his, his reason for not searching for the donkeys anymore, right? I think that is a dangerous game that we can get into the habit of without even realizing that we get into the habit of it. And it comes up later in Saul's life. We'll talk about it a couple classes from now. But it starts off here. The reason that he gives to stop searching for the donkeys... Is it, you know, unreasonable? No, right? It's not unreasonable. Is it, does it, is it bad? Is it, you know, I, uh, you know, I just, I'm defying my father now. No, it's, it's nothing bad, right? But it, it stops him from his task. And I think oftentimes we can do the same thing. We can do something similar, right? Where we can come up with reasons that sound really good, and make us feel good about no longer completing the tasks that we've been given, right? Whatever that task may be. 
And so we have to be careful. But I also think it's interesting that, you know, this kind of tactic, to me, is something that a good politician would have, right? If you don't want to do something and you're going to try and find a way out of it, what do you do? Well, you've got to shift the focus to something else. We need to do something else because that's more important right now, right? And that kind of makes sense, again, for, you know, what kind of king is being chosen here. It's a king like the other nations. And so good-looking, very tall, but also has some politic to him, right? Uh, you see that again in uh, verses 6 through 8, where there's a servant who, before they go home, let's try this one other thing, right? Before we go home, he suggests going to see who? Let's go see Samuel. Let's go see the man of God. And, you know, if we go see this man of God, you know, we can uh, ask him what's going on. Maybe he can tell us about our journey uh, maybe, you know, there's somewhere that he can tell us to look that we haven't looked. Maybe he has some information that we benefit from, right? So we need to go see this man of God. And uh, Saul says, okay, but what? We don't have a gift. You know, we go see the man of God. We can't just go without a gift, right? Um, and, and the servant says he has what they need, right? He has something uh, that he can bring uh, in uh, what is it? A fourth of a shekel of silver, and uh, he'll give it to the man of God. He'll tell us our way. And, uh, and I, I like what Saul says in verse 10. He says, well said, come, let us go, right? Which, again, to me sounds very political in, in a way, right? I, we don't have the gift. And the other person says, well, I have the gift. And he says, oh, yes. We have the gift now. Let us all go and give all the gift that we need to give, right? It's not coming out of my pocket, but we have it. Yes, let's go do it, right? Um, I think this is another point that can be brought up about Saul. There's this idea, right, of we can't just go to the man of God and ask our request. We have to have some kind of transaction. And I don't think that's necessarily anything bad in this case, right? It's nothing that's a problem. If you're going to the man of God, yes, you would want to bring him something. It's a sign of reverence in the culture at the time, right, to, to do that, to bring that gift. But you see this in the character of Saul and how he eventually will behave as a king. You get something that you pay for, right? You don't get something out for free. You don't give something up for free. If you want this person to be on your side, you have to give them something. They're going to demand something. You'll have to you know, provide them with something, so then they'll be on your side. If I am going to provide some kind of service, I expect something in return. And that's dangerous as well. It can be, right, later on. Because if you're treating your, your relationship with people this way, eventually you might treat your relationship with God that way. And that's a problem. Right? We can't have a transactional relationship with God because what can we provide God? Nothing, right? Nothing. And what has God provided us? Everything, right? It's a very uneven playing field, right? Uh, but I think, I think that wording there, you know, Saul uh, saying, well said, good job, servant guy, let's go do it, right, uh, is very interesting. Any comments there on the character of Saul and his servant? Yes, Brother Bruce. I think there's one thing we can give God that he needs, and that's our heart, because unless we give it to 
Right, that's true. Yeah. And that's going to come up in a little bit too. Right? Any other comments? Okay. So we get to uh, verse 16, right? They go and they see if the man of God is there. Uh, Saul and the servant, they travel. They go to the slope of the city. They find young women drawing water. They ask about the seer. uh, And you have a little uh, parenthetical uh, statement, explanation about the seer, about come, let us go to the seer, right? The man of God is called the seer. So that's, that's why he's referred to as such there. And they say, yes, the Samuel is there. He's ahead of you. He's come to the city today. The people have a sacrifice. And so, you know, go, go see him. And so they go up to the city, and uh, Samuel's coming out towards them. And then in verse 15, we go back in time, right? We go back a day before Saul gets there. So we go back. We jump back to the day before Saul arrives and, and sees Samuel. And the Lord is revealing something to Samuel. Um, He tells Samuel that tomorrow he's going to show him the man who's been chosen to be king. I want us to pause for a moment here and just consider what's happening. A lot of times when we read, I don't know about you, but when I read different books, different works of fiction, things like that, they can come off very one-dimensional, right? This character that I'm reading about feels this way. This character that I'm reading about feels this way. Now they're mad. And now they're sad. And now they're, right, very one-dimensional, right? Okay. Real people are not so one-dimensional, right? We have complex feelings and emotions. We have complex experiences that we've been through. We can feel mad, sad, happy, and angry all at the same time, right? We can, Because we're complex like that, right? Think about Samuel at this time. He is an older gentleman, right? He's been a judge for the children of Israel for a while. He has saved them from different nations. He's helped them achieve victory. He's had to deliver rebukes to the person who was in charge of his upbringing about him not raising his sons correctly. He had to see that consequence come to fruition, and they're all killed because of that. Um, Samuel, I think, has complicated feelings about this situation because of what the Lord tells him about Saul. Um, Before the children of Israel have rejected God and Samuel was upset, right? Samuel was upset by that because Samuel knows what that means. He's been a judge. He understands the consequences that go along with that. But here in uh, verses 16 and following, the Lord tells him, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. So what the Lord tells Samuel is, I chose Saul to deliver the people from the Philistines. Saul's going to accomplish this, right? That would be kind of, I think, conflicting emotions going on there. Because Samuel had to deliver a warning to the people. He had to tell them, this king is not going to be what you want, 
right? There's going to be a lot of problems, a lot of complication, a lot of pain that comes from having this king that you are, you know, are choosing instead of the Lord. But yet the Lord tells Samuel that this king is going to be used to deliver the Philistines, deliver the children of Israel from the Philistines, right? I think that's interesting. Now, is it within God's power to deliver his people with a wicked individual? Yes, right? That occurs often. But I think it would be conflicting for Samuel, who's having to, you know, anoint this new king, having to lead the people through this time. That would be difficult to understand, right? Difficult to understand. Here's the the question, though. Does he have to understand it all? No. What does Samuel need to understand? Right, the source, that God's involved, right? That what God expects of him. Samuel needs to understand what the Lord wants him to do, right? And then what about the rest of it? You have faith about the rest of it, right? You trust the Lord, and you trust that the Lord's going to enact his plan as he has planned, and it will all work out in the way that he expects, right? And I just want us to pause and think about that for a little bit because I don't always think about that when I'm reading through these examples, right? I don't always think about that when I consider Moses and, you know, you read through like we did going through Numbers and Deuteronomy and talking about in Exodus how, oh, okay, here the people are. They rejected God again and here Moses is. He's saving them again. Man, Moses would just be really fed up and like give up on these people, right? But what we miss is sometimes the amount of time that occurs between those events, the fact that these are his family, right? It's his family. It's his people. Um, and that can make it tough. That can give us, you know, uh, maybe a bit more leniency with people, right? We have some leniency with our family oftentimes that we don't with others. That can give us more patience with them, maybe, than with others. Um, but also, it makes it very difficult on the individual. And sometimes I don't think we think about that, right? These are individuals that are given difficult tasks, and they are our example because, guess what? In this life, we're going to have some difficult things that we're going to have to go through and do that we are not going to understand how it's going to work out, right? But what is our job? Same as Samuel's. Our job is to do what the Lord tells us and leave the rest up to faith and trust, right? And that's not easy, but it is possible, right? It is doable. We can do that. Um, But there's going to be this deliverance from the Philistines. And, uh, you know, I think that also puts us in an interesting spot. You're talking about setting up a brand new king in a nation that's currently occupied, (laughs) right? You're occupied by the Philistines, but, well, we want another king. We want it to be our king. Okay, That's going to be difficult, right? It should be. Uh, But again, with God, it's it's definitely possible, right? Any comments on that? Yes. I think it's important to to recognize between 8.22 and 9.15, this whole quest, as you call, that uh, Saul engages in, 
happens between is not necessarily a matter of chance. And, they, and so behind the scene is God, you know, working in the life of you know, Saul's family so that Saul meets Samuel. Mm -hmm. So to get from point A to point B, something happens has to happen in the middle to, to make that journey, to, to get to, to where God needs him to be so that God can do what he's already chosen right. Saul to become. Right, that's true. You had to have a way for them to meet, and, and what would that reason be? And, and here it is. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Any other comments? Okay. So, uh, verse 17, Samuel sees Saul, and the Lord says to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. And so Saul approaches Samuel and asks where the seer's house is. Uh, again, there, there's no social media at that time, right? You don't have a picture of Samuel the prophet, right? Um, so, you know, who's, who's the prophet? And Samuel says, that's me. Um, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. Okay. Right? If you're Saul, uh, not what I was expecting. But all right, here we go. Right? And so there's this meal that happens, right? A ceremonial meal between 19 through 26. There's a portion that's been set aside for Saul. There's uh, preparations that have been made ahead of time. And kind of, you know, to Brother David's point, what is, who is this for, right? Who is this for? It's not for all the people, right? Because who's at this meal? Yeah, a select group of people, right? Not all the people. There's a, a few people compared to the entire nation of Israel, right? But one person is definitely there, and it's Saul, right? And so I think this is kind of impressing, again, on Saul that something unique and something special is going on here, and God's hand is involved, right? Because why, how did he know that I'm coming? How did he know to have this meal prepared? How did he know, you know, he set this aside for me? What does that mean, right? That shows honor to someone who, again, thinks that he's the lowest of the low in his family, right? Um, you know, he, Samuel tells him, your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them. They've been found. Um, and uh, is it not for you and for all your father's household? Saul replies, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest tribes of Israel? My family is the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. Why then do you speak to me in this way, right? What, what is happening? I should not be given all this honor. And yet he is. And there's a reason, Right? And Samuel's going to tell him that after uh, the next day, right, at the next day. And so uh, Samuel gives him the, the meat that's been prepared, uh, set it before you and eat because it's been kept for you until the appointed time. Uh, so Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they come down, Samuel speaks with Saul on the roof. And what does he say to him? We don't know, right? But he speaks to him on the roof. And then uh, as they arise early at daybreak, Samuel tells him to send his servant on. And uh, Samuel and Saul uh, go out uh, to the edge of the city. And so 
Samuel's then going to anoint him as king and tell him some things. Um, this is, you know, the private anointing of Saul as king, right? It's not something that's done in front of all the people that will come later. But this is just Samuel and Saul and who? God, right? And I think that's significant because this is a covenant, right? This is going to be a covenant. You are being anointed as king, as a monarch. This is the beginning of something special. And so it's significant. And so there's a kind of a, a seriousness and a somberness to this situation, right? The servant goes away because the servant is not involved. This is between Samuel and Saul and the Lord. And Samuel takes the flask of oil, he pours it on his head, he kisses him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? And then he tells him to expect some certain things because of this, right? Saul has already been skeptical about this whole situation. I don't know what's going on here. I'm not that special. I don't know why you're doing this to me. So Samuel's giving him some evidence, right? You are going to go to Rachel's tomb and two men are going to be there and tell you that the donkeys have been found. Right? And then you're going to continue on and you're going to get to the oak of Tabor. And there's going to be three men. And they're going to be, uh, they're going to have very specific items, right? Three men are going to meet you uh, heading up to God at Bethel. And one's going to be carrying three young goats. Uh, another's going to be carrying three loaves of bread, and another's going to be carrying a jug of wine. Why the person had to carry three goats and the other person had one jug of wine, I don't understand. But that's very specific, right? It's very specific. And so they will greet you, they'll give you two loaves of bread, and you will take it. And then you'll keep going, right? Afterward, you'll come to the hill of God, where there's a Philistine garrison. Again, remember, we're talking about a nation that's been invaded, right? The Philistines are in the land. They have a garrison in the middle of the Israelites here, right? But uh, you will go up there, and in that city you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, tambourine, flute, and a lyre, and they will be prophesying. Again, note how specific that is, right? They will have these instruments, and they will be prophesying. And then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily. You shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. And it shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. So, you know, why all these things? Why all these specific things? Again, I think it's to emphasize the fact that this is something significant. This is a covenant that's occurring. This is going to be a lasting thing. And Saul needs to understand the impact and the implication of what has occurred, right? This is not just something that happens to everybody all the time, right? It's not something that Samuel's known for doing. But this is something specific about him, and it's going to affect the rest of his life, right? And also it's from God, right? Who else... Could it be from giving him all these detailed prophecies about what's going to occur on his trip home, right? Thoughts on this verse 6 changed his heart. We see that when we uh, think about, or we, when I read that, I think about what we've discussed before, which is, right, Pharaoh, right? That's another example of 
someone's heart being changed in some way. Um, there's some things that I don't know about this verse, about changing his heart, right? I do not know specifically how God changed his heart, right? The process that he went through to do that, what occurred. Um, like Brother Leland has told us in his lessons on angels, there's some things that we just don't know. But there are some things that I do know. This changing of Saul's heart did not take away his free will. As Brother Bruce stated, that's something that only we can give to God is our, our heart, right? It did not get taken away from Saul, and so now he's you know, unable to do anything except for what the Lord wishes, right? And we, we see that in, in the next few lessons. Um, but that's, not, that's something we know did not happen with this. Another thing we know is that this changing of Saul's heart, uh, it was known by the people, right? It was something that occurred that caused that the people knew about, right? They knew that something had happened to Saul because Saul's not acting like himself anymore, right? Saul's acting different. He's doing things that he wasn't doing before. And specifically, it's in verse uh, 10, 11, and 12, it talks about when they came to the hill there. Uh, you know, it happened when he turned back from uh, Samuel to leave. God changed his heart. All those signs came about on that day. When he came to the hill, behold, a group of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so he prophesied among them. And in verse 11, the people who knew him previously saw that he was prophesying with the prophets, and they said, What? This is Saul. We know Saul. We know his dad. We know his family. He's, he's prophesying with the prophets. He didn't do that before, right? Um, they, it was so you know, impactful to them that in verse 12 it says it becomes a, a proverb, right? A general saying, which is, is Saul also among the prophets? Right? That, that to me... You know, I don't know how that phrase would have been used necessarily in the local culture, but to me, that's impactful, right? When something, some event that occurs turns into a statement that you make in just general conversations throughout your life, that has some meaning, has an impact, right? Uh, I, you think about statements today that may be similar, right? Your name is mud is one that comes to my mind. Right? Your name is mud. You know, an event occurs that's so impactful that it changes the way you know, certain words can be used and gives them new meaning. Right? Um, I don't know exactly what you know, occurred in Saul's heart, how he was, you know, what, what physical changes to his heart were. No, I'm just kidding. I don't think it was physical changes, right? But what personality differences do we see there? I don't know. It doesn't say. But I do know what you see, and what you see is a difference, right? An impactful difference made between the people and, and what Saul used to be. Yes, Brother Nate. Could, could it be that, you know, as the Lord gave him the spirit, the aspect of he gave him a new heart was now Saul had a new direction to go in life. You know, he had a new purpose um, to go. His thinking was different now. Yeah, it could be. 
I, it could be. I think it's. I think it's hard to answer exactly because again, we get such a limited window of Saul before he became king. Um, it's it's hard to tell what was different before and what was different after, right? Um, but it, it, it's possible, right? We use that idea of a change of heart in a very broad way. Um, and so, you know, you can have a change of heart about almost anything, and the, the extent to which that would go depends on what you're talking about, right? Um, yes, Brian? Do you, uh, not, not to get too far ahead, but do you notice in, in verse 26... Uh, it's talking about Saul going home, and it mentions that valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. Uh, I just thought that was interesting. I kind of connect those two things. And one thing that I maybe thought about was that God had now provided evidence of what the path forward was. God had provided evidence to Saul, right? and this evidence was now also going to be clear to others, yeah. and their heart was going to also be changed because of what God had provided to them. Yes, I think that the, again, like I was saying, the evidence of the change is is obvious, and I think that's intentional. And like you're saying, I think that's intentional to the point that God is establishing a new kingdom in this nation, right? There's going to be a monarchy now, and there's things that you need in a monarchy that you didn't need before, right? Things that you're going to need now. You're going to need an army. You're going to need people to work for the king. You're going to need the king to have support of the people. And part of that is going to come from this, right? Saul is prophesying. What does that say? Well, that says that this is God's doing, right? God has chosen this man. And that's going to have an effect on others, as you stated. That's going to have an impact on those who hear about it, those who see those things. And they're going to be moved. Some of those are going to be moved to follow after him and, and do what needs to be done to help support him in that role. Yeah, I believe so. Any other comments on that verse? Yeah, Brother Ben. Yeah, a, a loose uh, parallel in uh, John chapter 4. Samaritan woman comes to the well, certain view of the world, certain conditions. And Jesus interacts with her, gives her definitive proof of, of certain things. And she leaves um, telling the world, the her world, about a man who knows, who knows everything about her. And because of that, creates a, a buzz about him. It's a similar, similar parallel. Like, do you say Jesus changed her mind? Yeah, he did. Not, not by grabbing her and saying, you know, touching her head and giving her a new view of life, but just through the definitive power that he had, in, in that case in prophecy, similar to Samuel. So I think it's... It's not um, uncommon uh, for God to use, uh, use this way to change people's minds, uh, I sure. guess. I think, I think my, uh, the, the, the unique situation here with Saul is that it, it says that his heart is changed, he prophesies, and then it's not very far later before he's just way off, right, um, from what occurred. And so, you know, what was changed about Saul... Uh, I think is obvious in the in the passage here. It's he's prophesying, and he he didn't normally do that, um, and that has an impact on the people. But how much does that have an impact on Saul is yet to be seen, right? Um, it definitely has an impact in that. Okay, now I'm, I, I guess I will go along with you know this plan that has been set before me, but you know how far is he willing to follow God's law? Uh, you know. He hasn't been tested in that yet, I don't think, at this time. Good comments. Any other comments on that?
king, and it is an, it's an outpouring of God's goodness so that in spite of their rejection of him, he is going to listen to them. Um, in 9 verse, uh, what is it, 16, for I have regarded my people. They had rejected him, but he's still having regard for his people and because of what's going on with the Philistines, that's, that's really uh, something significant. And so all of these things that he's bringing about are, are an outpouring of his goodness. Yes. And that, I mean, that goes right into what I was going to be talking about. You know, Saul's chosen for the people, right? Um, in, you know, in our questions, question three is who chose Saul? God chose Saul. Who else chose Saul? Yeah, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 18, the people chose Saul, right? The people chose this king. But God also chose the king. And I think Jonathan hits the nail on the head. God cares and loves these people. Saul is going to be an instrument that he uses to free them from the suppression of the Philistines and to get them out of their hand, right? Even though... The reason for Saul's occurrence is because the people have rejected the Lord, right? How apt are you to do something benefiting someone else who has totally rejected you, right? That's very difficult, right? That's very hard for us to do. Someone who said, no, you're cut off. I don't want to speak to you ever again. Well, I could do this nice thing and maybe they wouldn't know about it. I could do that for them. Am I going to? Right, right. Not unless we have the mind of God. Because it's, it's difficult, right? It's hard. But, you know, I am a new parent. I think about this uh, from the parent side because I, I feel that more now. We're going through sleep training with winter. Sitting for two hours at night, middle of the night, 3 a.m., listening to a baby scream and standing at their crib looking at you sitting there is hard, Right? But I'm doing that because I want her to learn to, that it's okay. She can sleep on her own because that's better for her. She gets better sleep that way, right? In the moment, though, that's very difficult, right? It's very hard. But sometimes we have to do hard things, right? Sometimes we're called to do hard things because our Father, right, our Lord, has that kind of love and shows that kind of love to others, to us, Right? It's difficult, but it's possible. You know, we can have that kind of love too. But again, yeah, Jonathan, I think you're exactly right. That is the significance of this, right? Uh, you know, Paul is sub, uh, excuse me, Saul is publicly chosen as king. Uh, Samuel gathers the people together here in verse 17 and following in chapter 10. Um, He's drawing them by lots, right? They pull all the people together. Benjamin is taken by lot. You pull all the people together. The family of Kish is taken by lot. You pull all the people. Okay, Saul is taken. All right, let's crown the king. Where is he? The Lord says he's hiding in the luggage. You know, got to go get him. Okay, so they go. In verse 23, they run and they get him. He stands among the people. And once again, he's not a bunting. He's tall, right? Um, he's taller than the people's shoulders upward. Samuel says to all the people, verse 24, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, long live the king. And then verse 25, I think is significant. Samuel 
tells the people the ordinances of the kingdom, and he writes them in the book and places it before the Lord. Right? Again, what we covered last week in chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, the ordinances of the kingdom, those were given. There are specific laws that are happening, right? The people, the children of Israel are not doing this on their own. They're not setting up a kingdom on their own and okay well now we got to figure out like how do we handle this and how do we handle that and how do we handle this no the lord gave them those instructions this is happening the lord's way right and samuel writes that down and presents it before the people and the lord and then i find this interesting samuel sends everyone away back to their own house okay so everyone goes back to their house and where does saul go Back to his house, right? Okay, all right, I'm king now, thanks. Okay, see you guys. He goes back to his house. Um, I just think that's kind of, that's funny in my head, right? Of what happened because where else is he gonna go, right? We don't have a capital city yet. We don't have a king's house for him to live in, right? There's no castle on the hill that he goes to and is protected in. No, we don't have that. This is a brand new king, right? So where else is he going to go? He's going to go back to his home. And what's he going to do? Probably what he was doing before, right? Uh, He's going to go back home and he's going to continue what he's doing. But in this case, you know, as Brian mentioned, there are certain men that go with him back to his house in Gibeah, valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. And I think this is going to tie in later, but Saul is going to see the benefit of having these kinds of individuals with him, right? He's going to see that, valiant men that come with him. But in verse 27, there's also a different kind of men that are there, right? We have these worthless individuals uh, that, you know, say, how can this one deliver us? And they despise him, and they didn't bring him any kind of present, but he kept silent, right? Saul's not going to take it out on him. And we'll find out more about that next time. All right. Thank you very much for your attention.